Our God is a very complex being. Yet at the same time, he has created most things we see to be within our grasp of understanding. If we would just do a bit of investigation. This is what education and more specifically biblical education is all about. Learning of our God and how he would have us know him. And more importantly, how we, he would have us worship him. When we consider what came before creation, the very thought can be a bit mind-boggling because we think in terms of time, space, and matter, or things that can be measured. However, before creation, there was nothing, and nothing has no starting point, no center point, no end point, and thus no reference point to measure. God created all things, what they would call ex nihilo, or out of nothing, in consideration of nothing. And if one were to look at an empty jar, and we're going to have somewhat of a science class here. I I don't mean it to be a science class. I'm just laying foundation here. But... If we were to look at this jar, for example, most would say that there is nothing inside the jar. But this is simply not true. I could turn over the jar. I can empty it. There is a little bit of water in it. But if I turned it over, the water would completely be gone. But the jar is still full with something. There is much inside the jar. One just cannot see what is in the jar because what we see is a clear substance. Everyone see that? It's clear. Clear substance. But nonetheless, the jar contains much. The jar, in fact, is full. We just cannot see what it is full of. Thus, what we conclude from this illustration is that the air in the jar, much like the air that we breathe, was not present before creation, because air as a substance can be measured, but the things in eternity cannot be measured. One may not think that the air that we breathe is a complex substance, but a bit of investigation into the contents of air will prove otherwise. The following list of chemicals that make up air comes from thoughtco.com and is in agreement with other sources. And I quote, the primary chemical component of air is nitrogen gas. How many of us knew that? Oh, well, there is quite a few. So we've studied our science in regard to air. But nitrogen, oxygen, water, vapor, argon, and carbon dioxide account for about 99% of the composition of air. Trace gases include neon, methane, helium, krypton, hydrogen, xeon, ozone, and many other elements and compounds. Close quote. So with this list of elements included in the composition of air, which we can't see, we are given a bit more understanding of our God and how the things that he has created with the command of his word have such a complexity 
to them that it takes man much investigation to have even the slightest understanding of them. Most would look at this once again and say there's nothing in there. There's nothing to there's nothing to drink, there's nothing to take in, there's nothing I can touch. Uh, so why investigate it, right? <clears throat> but there is something there. In fact, the jar is full. <clears throat> this is one reason that we must conclude that God is completely other. He is completely outside of his creation. He is holy or set apart from his creation with no need of anything from man or anything else that he has created. He is totally sufficient in and of himself. However, in his providence, he chose to create man and engage in a relationship with the man. This is a mystery to me, of course, for why would a being create anything if he is all-sufficient in and of himself? He needed nothing. Why would our God create anything? He's completely sufficient in and of himself. Well, this is what is unique about our God. He created the world and of his own free will determined to love what he created and also to love what he created in a perfect fashion, which is something that we have no ability to grasp, nor do we have ability to do in and of ourselves outside of our relationship with God. If we are to love God as he loved us, we must have the content of God within us. We must have the life of Christ dwelling in us. If we are to love others as God has loved us. Now, contrary to our God, all men do love something. They love self and need to be born again and then explore the scriptures to understand how God would have us love others because loving others does not come natural to us. We may think it does, but before Christ, I would say our love for others is just a masquerade for loving self. Think about it. If we love someone, we tell someone we love them, we love them in a natural sense, because we love ourselves, we're wanting to gain something from the individual. And so actually, we are not loving them. We are first loving ourselves. <clears throat> Let's explore this a bit to validate my words here. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians I'm sorry, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. Let's see if we can validate this a little bit. Now, Paul's going to speak about love in this chapter. It's called the love chapter. But he's also going to speak about characteristics that the individual who has God's love possesses. And then he's going to speak of characteristics that... 
are negative and shouldn't be part of the individual who has God's love. He says in verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So you see, what is here in any relationship, what is evident, what is the operative word here, is love. Love is the primary component that we as Christians should display to others. And I would say that it will be impossible for you if you are a born-again believer who has been given the very character and the very mind of Christ to not express this love to others. Why? Because the love of Christ now abides in us. And it cannot stay as in a cistern within us. God will cause that love to be moved to others who are in our realm of, 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 or our environment that we live in, our realm of influence, I meant to say. He goes on in verse 3. He says, if I give away all that I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. And we must remember those two words when it comes to their association with love. Love is patient and it is kind. That's where love starts. If there is an offense towards us by someone else. Our love does not stop for that someone else. Our love continues. This we see specifically in the marriage relationship. When God has given husband and wife directions in regard to marriage, God never says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church only if your wife gives you respect. No. God doesn't say that. Nor does he say to the wife, respect your husband only if you see that he is loving you as Christ loved the church and he is tending to his garden properly. No. We know that there are probably issues there that need to be dealt with, certainly. But that doesn't end our love for our husband or our wife. Because, as Paul says in this chapter, love never ends, or love never fails. He, <clears throat> he goes on to say, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Now, these are characteristics that Christ just did not possess. And if we have the life of Christ in us, 
And we are displaying these kind of character traits. We need work. Right? This is not Christ. We need work. It is not arrogant. I'll I'll go to the negative again, negative aspects that speak against love. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures some things. No, the text doesn't say that. Love endures all things. Love never ends, verse 8 says. But as those things that Paul just spoke about, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I, should, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, love. Abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love being the very foundation by which we move and we speak and we have our being. Love is a foundation that we work from. I was speaking to Darren today and he he told me that he was going through 1 Corinthians 3 in in his studies. And Paul's talking about giving the people in Corinth milk. And Paul, many times, says, I have given you milk. You should have gone on to maturity, but now I've got to come back and give you milk. I've got to teach you how to love. I've got to teach you how to have the character traits of Christ. I've got to teach you how uh, not to be irritable or resentful or arrogant or boasting or envious? Do I have to come back and teach you these things once again? And we all know Paul had a very difficult time in in his two letters with the church at Corinth. But God has an expectation with you and I. Are we really born again? Are we Christians? Are we going on to maturity? Do we want to be that individual that other people look at and say, that person is a follower of Christ? Now in this 1 Corinthians 13 text, Paul is addressing the church in Corinth. He is not addressing the unbeliever. Remember our rule that when we start reading a book, we want to see who it's addressed to. And that's, uh, th- there's, uh, that's a difference. There's an argument in the church today because some will say in the church that all of these things that Paul wrote about, Peter wrote about, John wrote about, they're for all men. Well, no, they aren't. Paul here is writing to the church. He is writing to 
Christians. The love that we read about in this text is a love that only those who are born again, born of God, can understand. And thus, only a love that can be displayed by the Christian. This is important for us to understand. For example, the unbeliever may say that he or she loves something or someone, but the love that they display is just an imitation of love that has been learned from their experiences with others like themselves who are outside the faith. Is anyone outside the faith not a son or daughter of the devil? And do they not take their instruction from him? Yes, they do. We all need, all men need a work of God's grace within them to be opened up to this kind of love, to this kind of truth. This kind of love, the, the love that we receive as we walk and experience the world around us, is contrary to the love that only God can give to the individual at the time of their conversion. Turn with me to 1 John 4, and let's work through this from this text of Scripture. Now, in this text, John is exhorting the believer to use the wisdom that they have gained from above, or God's wisdom granted to the believer to discern those things that we see and hear while in communication with others, right? Anytime we communicate with anyone, we study the words that they say against what has been written in Scripture. This is our command. He says at verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them, right? Satan, the devil, he is the the great chaos bringer. And it's talking to Darren today uh, once again. And he said, you know, the devil doesn't need to go to the bars or the brothels. He's already got those guys on their team. No, he wants to be right here in the church. He wants to cause chaos in our midst. He wants to cause disunity and separate us. That's his goal. That's his goal. But as we read this, we read the first Five verses here in 1 John 4. We, we are to study every situation, every communication against the word of God that we come up against. For example, if you have a Mormon friend and you say, well, yeah, they, they 
talk like a Christian, they love Jesus, they pray, they do all these good things. I think they're a Christian. But did you know that the Mormon believes that Elohim, who we'll talk about a little bit later, Elohim, the the father, came down and he had relationships, physical relationships with Mary to bear Jesus. Now, is this what we read in our Bible about Jesus? That Jesus came in time. He has not always been God. And it took a a physical act between Elohim and Mary to produce Jesus. Test the spirits to see whether the individual you are speaking with is of God or not. He goes on in verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Okay, so what is the source of love that he gives here? God, right? Love is from God. So God is the source of love. Nothing that we have experienced in the world. No, God is the source of love. Now, who has this love of God? Let's continue reading. He says, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So guess what that is saying? If you're not born of God, if you do not know God, you do not know love. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. This is a very simple text to, to read, right? Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you're not born again, you don't know God, you don't know love. Just like how, how our world is trying to obliterate marriage today by changing the definition or adding to the definition that two men can get married, that two women can get married. No, I'm sorry, God already has his definition of married marriage, one man and one woman coming in to a sacred unity before God. That is marriage. So we reject anyone that says two males or two females can be married. That's not marriage. Don't let the world take the definition from us. Marriage between one man and one woman before God. A sacred union. That's the definition. So we see the same thing with love. Hallmark wants to take the definition away from us, right? But we don't do it. No, no, we refuse. God defines love. And that's where we will sink our roots in the definition that God has given. No one else. He goes on to say in verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So He sent His Son into this world as a demonstration of sacrificial love. To die for you and I. Scripture says, even when we were yet sinners, Christ died for you and I. Even when we hated Him, He died for you and I. This is God's love. This is sacrificial love. And like He says, the only way we can express this love is with the love of Christ dwelling in us. We need Christ to display or demonstrate this love. Anything outside of this is not love. Beloved, he says in verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What does this mean, right? If we love one another, we don't give up on one another. You know, if someone does something to offend me, you know, it's, it's not my responsibility to rail back at them. Well, you said this, I'm going to say that, and I'm going to bring up the past. Your past offenses. No. Love is not retaliatory. Love sacrifices. Okay, I understand. I'm in a very difficult way with this individual. This individual is coming at me with both barrels. But my Bible tells me to love my enemy and pray for those who despitefully use me. This is Christ. Is this how we demonstrate love? In a sacrificial way, not considering self. <gasps> what can I get out of this? No. That's not love. Love is sacrificial. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God to offer up your bodies a what? A living sacrifice. To walk through this life and say, my life doesn't matter much. God has called me a, a, over here. I might lose my head or my life. But this is where he has called me. That's giving up our lives as a living sacrifice before God. As Christ did for us. We see in these love passages... That the very character of God is revealed in a mighty way. Love, the operative word in these texts, is descriptive of, a, of the person of Christ. For Christ is the very manifestation of love, and he expresses love as the one through whom all things were created. Thus, he did not just create all things, but he also determined to love what he has created. You're going to get pregnant and you want to live Christ? 
before your children, it's going to be a lot of sacrifice. A lot of sacrifice. You can become selfish, which we have in the 20th century. We became selfish. You know, the men went off to war in the early 20th century. The women had to go in and uh, <clears throat> and support the work eth- uh, effort in the manufacturing plants. And w- then women want to be like men with the women's liberation movement. Um, and it just... It just tumbled from there uh, at, the, at, the, at the dawn of the 20th century. That's when came compulsory education. Oh, I've got to go out and work, so my kids need to go somewhere. I need to put them into the public school system now. The family was blown apart. To say that God is love, as we can see from these texts, is a scriptural truth. And when God acts, he acts only in love, for this is the only foundation of which he works from. For God to demonstrate perfect love, he must have a perfect love for all that is good. And remember this as well. In contrast to this, he must have a perfect hatred for that which is evil. For example, God has love for those of us who desire to preserve and protect life because of the content of Christ that dwells within us. But he also has a hatred toward those who would disregard life by practicing things such as child sacrifice, better known as abortion today, or those who would support those who commit such atrocities. Scripture tells us that God hates the worker of iniquity. Those who determine to sin and shake their fist in the face of God. However, this God of love, he created all things, and we as his disciples or ambassadors are exhorted, if not commanded, to exhibit this love to all those who are in our realm of influence. If we do not, we are misrepresenting who he is, as well as showing that we do not have this love abiding in us. I used to tell my sons, they played baseball when they were younger. They had my name on their back, Peter said. Said, you're going out on that field to represent me. You're going to represent me properly or you don't play. So if we're not representing Jesus properly, get out of the game. We do not deserve to be called his children, his disciples, his ambassadors. Now, abiding is a strong word, which means to hold fast to, to not let go, always finding oneself under the, and within the shadow of the Almighty, no matter where we find ourselves or what we are doing. 
If we have God's love abiding in us, then by the new nature that he has given us, his love will be demonstrated. First to those in the church and secondly to those on the outside of the church in the form of the gospel. This kind of love is an operation and thus a byproduct of his grace. This love will naturally flow from the Christian's life, for the Christian has the life of Christ dwelling in him. And Christ is the perfect demonstration of love. We need to think on these things, even dwell on this truth, for we cannot escape its implications. As a believer, we are not requested to, but we are commanded to, even go so far as to love our enemies and pray for those who despitefully use us. You know, when they spit on Jesus, they beat him, they pulled his hair. We don't see him, I'm done with this, Father. Go the other way. No. He had to go to the cross or you and I are still dead in our sins. Now, who puts on display Christ in our generation today? Our responsibility, yours and mine. Do we have Christian on the back of our jersey? Then we need to live like we do or else take off the jersey. When Jesus hung on a tree on the tree, he did not lash out in scourging language against his adversaries, but he petitioned his father that he would forgive them, for they did not know what they were doing. And thus we do the same. You may have someone in your life who is demonstrating themselves similarly in an evil way toward you as those who mock Christ when he was on the cross. However, the Christian's position is not to retaliate in a similar way as their adversary, but to be as Christ and petition the intervention of our Heavenly Father in the matter. As Christ looked out on the crowd who observed his crucifixion, he knew who those were who would come to him through faith and those who would not. The ones who would come to him through faith were the ones that he was petitioning the Father to forgive. For as yet they did not have the understanding that they were crucifying the one who came to save them. It is a biblical truth to say that before the foundation of the world or before the Lord crafted each of us in our mother's womb, God loved his people and had a plan to redeem them from their sin. Specific plans are what the Lord has for each of us, even before we were born, which shows us that we did not make our own decision to be saved. We have the responsibility to make that decision, but we couldn't have done it without the grace of God present within us. As example, Jeremiah 1, 4 to 5 says this about this topic. He said, now the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah speaking, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
And before you were born, I consecrated you, or I set you apart. I sanctified you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. Just as Paul on the road to Damascus could not reject the will of God for his life, neither could Jeremiah. God had his man in both cases and was determined to take that man's life by God's decree to the end. He who began a work in you will depend on you to complete it. No, that's not what the scripture tells us. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. That's his promise to us. Our Heavenly Father is affectionate and has placed each of us who know him in a position where he not only communicates with us from day to day, but he also orders our very steps that we take in life. And he orders our steps to bring us into conformity to the life of his Son. This was his plan from before creation. There are those who would believe that God wound up his creation like a top and let it go with no determined plan or direction. You all have free will to do just as you want. However, our God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order and will ensure that what he has ordered in our lives will come to pass. Contrary to such a thought, the Lord had a purpose for every person, for every fowl, fish, animal, insect, plant, for every time period, and for every event that would find itself in any given time period. There are no free radicals in God's creation. Everything has a purpose, with each component of God's masterpiece being created in such a way that brings glory to him, and secondarily brings redemption and benefit to those he would call to be his own. This is the unmerited love that the Lord has bestowed upon his creation. And like a doting father, he watches over all of it and claims it all to be his own. Another thing that we've allowed the world to take the narrative no, I am here to tell you that my, the Bible I read says that God owns everything. And it's incumbent upon you. You are responsible to repent of your sins and to believe on Christ. It's not an invitation. It's not a suggestion. It's a command according to Acts 17 verse 30. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men to believe the gospel. All men. <clears throat> this is the God who in the beginning created all things. But let's dig a bit further into this God who has claimed everything as his own. Please turn with me to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 1. 
we read this at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. There was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, in my last sermon, I covered the fact that time and everything within time can be measured, just like the air in the the jar. Because everything except the soul has a life expectancy and thus can be measured. Everything within time has a beginning and an end, or two reference points that encompass the life of that which has been created. Whereas in eternity, there are no reference points, no beginning, no ending, and no time in between. In reality, we have nothing that explains, explains what existed before time. The only information we have is that God existed and that he has always existed. However, because God is self-sufficient, he did not have need to create anything. He created all things out of his love for that which he would create and to extend his glory to those that he would choose to be heirs of salvation. And this is where we find ourselves in our study, is at the dawn of creation. But think about this. God has no need for you. He has no need for me. (laughs) Right? But because of his love for his creation, before he even created, he created. He created man. He created woman. He created a, a, a beautiful relationship between them to express his love for his church. This is God's love. This is the kind of love we have towards, we are commanded to have towards others. Now there are many views in regard to how God made the world. Once again, we don't give up the creation record. We don't give any creation to evolution or any other fabrication in the imagination of man's mind. We don't give up any ground. Say, no, that's not true. We know the record. We know that God created the heavens and the earth and he created them in six days. And then he rested. Some will even espouse to God using the process of evolution to create all things, which those who would embrace such an idea would call theistic, evolution, or that God was behind it. However, a simple reading coupled with a simple understanding of Genesis 1 would not allow for such a rendering of the text. More information must be assumed to come to an understanding, such an understanding. And therefore, we take Darwin's theory of evolution and erase it from the record, for there is no way, according to God's word, that it contains any merit or truth. No way, it's impossible. 
God and evolution are incompatible. So we erase it from the record. We don't even give any credence to it, nor time. We should understand it so we could speak to it and give a defense for creation. But we erase it from the record. No. It's foolishness. It's just more chaos that Satan, who directed Charles Darwin, brought into the midst of the church. And this is from a man who had preachers in his family. As those who would hold to the 1689 Confession of Faith, we look to our confession for help in this matter. Now, as we have mentioned several times before, our confession of faith is not inspired like the scripture is, but it does point us to the scriptures that support the doctrines of the Christian faith. Our confession simply acts as a guide to the scriptures, an index of sorts to show us where in the Bible all Christian doctrines are found and supported. That's it. It's not inspired, but, but I thank these men who got together and wrote it because it points us to our Christian uh, doctrine. In chapter 4, section 1, the confession says this about creation. In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible in the space of six days and all very good. Pretty simple, right? Pretty simple, but this is what the scripture says. But you will notice that the confession contains the Trinity. Where we, we read in the first verse of the first book, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Generic term, God. But the confession, confession for a reason, calls out the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as those persons who created the world. But we need to ask if the context in the first verse of Genesis will allow for such a conclusion. The text in Genesis 1 uses the word God, which today, as we all know, has been turned into a very generic term that can be associated with any God. As most presidents say at the end of their speeches, may God bless America. Right? You've heard that maybe a hundred thousand times. The term has become so generic that no one is offended by it. But if the president were to say, may Jesus, may Jehovah, may Yahweh, may Yeshua bless America. Then we have a big problem, right? At that point, we have personalized this God. He's the Christian God. And now we have chaos all over the streets of our nation. Separation of church and state. Well, you didn't seem to be bothered when the president said, may God bless America. And rightfully so, because God is a generic term. 
Thus, for the sake of our text here, we must look at the original Hebrew word to understand the definition of God, or the word that is used for God in Genesis 1.1. The Hebrew word that is used for God in Genesis 1.1 is Elohim. The root word, El, is singular for God, along with the word Eloah. But Elohim is the more common, common usage for the word of God, for, word, for the word God, <clears throat> used over 2,500 times in the Old Testament alone, and is defined as God, plural, God, Remember, El is singular, Eloah is singular, but Elohim is God. Plural. As a side note, the word Elohim is also used for gods in the Old Testament when not referring to Yahweh. Yahweh, if you did not know, is God's personal name or the name that he holds alone. However, when Elohim is used to describe Yahweh, our God, it is consistently used with a singular verb and thus denoting the one God. But could Elohim be used in the text to indicate the presence of the three persons of the Trinity in the one God? That is a question for more learned minds than myself, but I do believe that it is a strong possibility. Nonetheless, we do know that God is one, but there are three persons who are identified as God in the Bible, in the scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. All called out as God in the scripture. This explanation is needed, in my opinion, because many believe that when God created, it was the Father who created, and the Son and the Holy Spirit came on the scene sometime later after creation. Have you heard that before? No, no, it's Father that created. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well... However, we can put this to rest with a few verses. First, back to Genesis 1, 1 and 2, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Thus, the Holy Spirit was present at creation. Now let's look at another verse in Colossians 1. Paul says this at verse 15, speaking of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. For by him all things were created. For by Jesus all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and him, in him all things hold together. 
And thus we see that Jesus was present at creation and the very one by whom all things were created. And so we make no mistake, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always been the one God and always will be the one God. It is vital to our understanding as Christians to embrace this truth and to know how to defend it because there will be times when we will be challenged by those who do not have this level of biblical understanding. Right? But if we have hidden this understanding in our heart, if we've, if we've memorized it and put it in the file cabinet up here, I guarantee you, in your time of need for what's up here in the file cabinet, God's going to give it to you. But we must do work. We must read the scripture. We must meditate on the scripture. We must memorize the scripture. We must hide the scripture in our hearts. Because someday we may not have our Bibles. What will we do then? We need to heed Peter's exhortation in 1 Peter 3 when he says this about our suffering for the faith which gives us a principle to follow in all areas of life. He says this at verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will for you than for doing evil, ready always to have an answer. That is our responsibility as Christians. And I would add to be confident. Oh, no, no, no. There's no other ways to God. God has commanded you to repent and believe the gospel. Do we preach the gospel with this level of confidence? Maybe one or two percent in the church might. But I think most say, well, yeah, you know what? Just give, a, just give Jesus a try. Just, you know, he's, Jesus, he's just up in heaven wringing his arms just wanting you to try him. No, that's not what the scripture says. Scripture says God has commanded you to believe the gospel. Don't make any bones about it. Listen, brother, listen, sister. We're here for 70, maybe 80 years, and we're gone. This is but a vapor. Are you ready to meet your maker? So this principle that we see in this text is that it is a Christian's responsibility to speak for God and give a defense for his faith when challenged to do so, and also to have an answer as to why he approaches the matters of life in the way he does, according to the precepts, the principles and the patterns that are found in Scripture. Contrary to this, the individual who is of the world can only draw from 
the wisdom that he has gained from his experience in his worldly pursuits. If the professing Christian does not get the creation record right, do we really think he's going to get anything else in Scripture right? In this sermon today, it has been my purpose to demonstrate from the Scriptures that at the dawn of time, God had a determined purpose and plan for that which he created. We see a God who, when he created, had a foundation to work from. That foundation was the love that he possessed for that which he would create. And so I exhort you, brothers and sisters, all of you, that when you do anything in this life, do your work from the same foundation of sacrificial love that God did his work. May the love that you possess for others be God's love that never fails and thus never ends. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you for such a sacrificial love from our Heavenly Father, from our wonderful Savior, and from this doting Holy Spirit who has come upon the world to convict us of our sins because of his great love for us. Oh God, would you help us in this area? Help us to be confident, especially in days where we may see extreme darkness, Lord. We will need you to be active within our lives so that we can be a light to those who are in darkness. And Father, we thank you for this time and pray that you would do a work in each one of us and that you would hide your word in our hearts. And we thank you now for this time, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.